Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with James Whiteside on Center Center. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Film, TV, and Performing Arts category for episode number 135 with Glenn Frankel on Shooting Midnight Cowboy. This is Glenn Frankel. I'm the author of Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. James Whiteside is the principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater, a member of the New York City-based drag posse, the Dairy Queens, and a published author. His new book is called Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir of a boy in ballet. James, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for asking. So this was a fascinating read. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm curious, though, you are certainly far from the end of life. Why did you decide that uh, late 30s was a good time to write a memoir? So I call this an almost memoir because <laughs> I am, I'm 37 and I have no business writing a memoir. But uh, I am advanced in my professional ballet years. You know, I can't do classical ballet forever. And I wanted to write something while I was still a professional dancer that sort of chronicled how I got to where I'm at in my career. That makes sense when you consider the physical requirements to keep up with the sport. And when you think about other sports, the career tends to come to an end in the late 30s into sometimes the early to mid 40s. Obviously, Tom Brady in football right now is doing some amazing things. What is the lifespan typically like for a ballet dancer? You know, it depends for everybody. It's different for everybody. But uh, I hope to dance into my early 40s, like 42, 43. I'm 37 now, so I got a couple more years in me, thankfully. (laughs) So why was Roald Dahl's book titled Boy an inspiration for you writing this book? I mean, I had been thinking about writing books since I was about 20 years old. I had the title way before I wrote the book, and uh, I called it Center Center because I wanted to reference the center mark on a stage, which is somewhere that I've always loved standing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when I was reading Boy by Roald Dahl, the atmosphere of the book, it was little stories with illustrations and a lot of absurd humor. Um, I don't know, I just thought to myself, okay, it's time. I've, I've lived quite a bit and I'm ready to tell some stories. Obviously, your story begins just after birth as a kid and starting to form conscious memories. Your parents divorced when you were two. What was your relationship with each as a kid? Well, (laughs) I had two very different households. Uh, My mother was free-spirited and fun-loving, kind of wild. Um, And my father is very austere and pragmatic. So I had... I had like, I almost had a different personality for each household. And uh, when I was 16, I asked my father if I can live predominantly in my mother's house because I had been, you know, being shuttled back and forth. It was like, it was crazy. And I was dancing at the time and it was all just too much. So I asked if I could just live at my mom's and, and he said, okay. What's the most memorable spanking you ever received from your mom? <laughs> oh my god 
Well, I mean, there were so many, honestly. Like I, she loved the wooden spoon. Yeah, she used to drag me into the kitchen and yank a wooden spoon out of the crock and just, just go to town. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I always deserved it. I think I was a, I was a little brat. Good lord. You know, it's funny. We grew up as uh, kids in the 1980s, and the idea behind spanking was very different. It was much more accepted back then. I actually remember the last wooden spoon spanking that I received in my household in the Dallas-Fort Worth suburbs. My younger brothers were watching, and I did something much like what you're talking about, where I certainly deserved uh, a little bit of a punishment. But my mom tried to hit me really hard. And I was probably about 10, 11, 12, and it didn't hurt. And I turned around and laughed, which all that did is piss her off more into trying to spank me a little bit harder. And unfortunately for her at that point, the next time she hit me, the wooden spoon broke in half. So that was the last time I got spanked. Do you remember the last spanking you received? Talk about buns of steel. Christ. <laughs> um, gosh, the la- no, I don't remember. I, I don't think my wooden spoon spankings went went beyond like seven or eight okay. years old. I don't remember, honestly. I've compartmentalized that trauma. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Why do you consider Jane Fonda your first dance teacher? Oh my gosh. My mom, I mean, I'm a kid of the 80s. My mom had all of Jane Fonda's workout tapes, like all of them. And I mean, I would daily, voluntarily pop in a Jane Fonda workout tape. And it was like, great 80s music and Jane Fonda was so gorgeous and compelling and I would just like it was like my babysitter or something (laughs) Jane Fonda was my babysitter (laughs) how was the trip that you took as a preteen to the Lincoln Center in New York City an epiphanous one for you I was 12 years old uh, when I saw American Ballet Theater for the first time my teachers brought me into the city to see a gala performance at Lincoln Center. And a gala performance at ABT is like, you know, it's a greatest hits kind of ballet on shuffle kind of thing. And I was just awestruck by the talent, by the virtuosity, by the costumes, lighting, music, the beauty of the theater. And uh, pretty much from that moment on, I vowed to be a member of of uh, American Ballet Theater. You came out of the closet around the age of 16. Considering that it was 2001, that wasn't as widely as embraced as it has become 20 years later. How tough a decision was it for you, and why did you ultimately decide to do it? I didn't come out on purpose, actually. Hmm. I, I was, you know, hiding my sexuality from my family, and uh, I had a boyfriend in high school that I that I'd never told my family about, and uh, he dropped me off at home one day at my mom's house, and my mom's car wasn't in the driveway, and I thought there was nobody home, but <laughs> my brother had taken my mom's car, and uh, I didn't know that, and so my boyfriend dropped me off in the driveway and gave me a kiss goodbye. And my mom was doing dishes at the kitchen sink, which had a window out to the driveway. And she saw us and she stormed out of the door with her dripping wet yellow rubber dish gloves on (laughs) and said, you know, Jimbo, get your ass in here. We've got to talk. And I was, I mean, I was terrified, honestly. Yeah. And uh, that's 
that's how I came out to my family. My mom didn't keep it under wraps. That's for damn sure. She called everyone in the family and was like, James is gay. <laughs> it was wild. No chill. After the shock value wore off, was everybody pretty supportive of you and your family? Yes, absolutely. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, you know, my father didn't care at all. He was like, okay, whatever. Uh, my mom took a little bit longer to get used to the, the idea. Um, she was a little... You know, she was in denial. I don't know how she could be in denial with a kid like me. I, I, it's, it's really wild. Um, but, you know, denial is a strong force. I applaud it. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, a little bit separate from that. Who is Raymond Lucan, and why do you consider him a guardian angel for your career? So uh, Raymond is one of my first dance teachers. He is friends with my very first dance teachers, Angie and Steve, where I trained in Connecticut. Um, and he was also the person who was my first boss. So I was accepted into Boston Ballet's apprentice company when I was 18 years old. And I moved to Boston and he was my director. And throughout my career, he's been sort of giving me opportunities and calling me when the time is right. And uh, I remember I was doing a Nutcracker I was my 10th year in Boston Ballet. I was a principal dancer there. And he called me and left a message while I was performing one, one day. And he said, hey, I know you've always wanted to be in American Ballet Theater. Now is the time. You need to come to New York. You need to audition for ABT. They need some, they need some men. And so that's exactly what I did. And, and, and I got a contract. Well, you ultimately did get the contract. And even though the audition went really well, why did you almost not accept their offer? Okay, well, this is, this is a good story, actually. So ABT is my dream company. I've always wanted to be a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. Ten years in at Boston Ballet, I auditioned for ABT. I, it's like the middle of a crazy uh, nutcracker season in December, and I have one day off. And on a Sunday night, I took the Fung Wah bus to New York City, and I slept on my brother's couch in the, east, uh, in the Lower East Side. And I woke up the next morning, uh, went into, you know, uh, uh, the Flatiron area and took class with American Ballet Theater as my audition. And like, you know, a ballet company audition isn't like the big cattle calls that you see on TV and stuff. You literally just go take class with the company, present your resume, meet the director, etc. After class, uh, the director offered me a soloist contract with American Ballet Theater. I thought that was fantastic. I had been a principal dancer in Boston Ballet and I was willing to take a step down to join American Ballet Theater. I was over the moon. I was gonna dance for my dream company as a soloist. I left, I went back to Boston. I got a call maybe two weeks later from the director of American Ballet Theater. Hey James, so I want you to think about this. We can't offer you a soloist contract. We want you to come as a court of ballet member, which is the rank below soloist. So I'd be going down two ranks to join American Ballet Theater. And I said I would think about it. And I called him back and I said, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years already. I can't, I can't go about like two steps down. That's just not going to work for me. Thank you so much for the opportunity, but no thank you. And then about 20 minutes later, he called me back and he said, all right, soloist it is. 
And then the following year, I was promoted to principal dancer. So things all worked out. Yes, they did. Now, while you uh, obviously bet on yourself and it worked out, was it a little bit terrifying to do that in the moment, to, to perhaps pass up this opportunity that you, you had wanted for so long, but also trying to stand on your, your morals and making sure that you weren't being sold a little bit short in the process? Yeah, this had nothing to do with my negotiating skills or my ability to haggle, you know, like I get really like crippling anxiety going to a store that you can haggle at. I'm like, all right, you can have, you can overcharge me. I'm uncomfortable. You're not very good at flea markets is what you're saying. No, flea markets are just a a social nightmare for me. (laughs) Um, But in this moment, it had nothing to do with posturing or anything. It was literally, I was like, can my soul take this? I've done this for a long time. I worked really hard to get here. I'm in a great place. I'm in a great company. Um, I'm not willing to sacrifice a bit of my soul to maybe or maybe not get what I want in the long run. And it was a gamble that really paid off. I trusted my instincts and it worked. That's fantastic. And while there is so much that I learned from reading this book about your life in ballet and away from ballet as well, I have to admit I was surprised to learn that homophobia has been a steady part of the world of ballet as well. Is there a glaring example from your time in the business that maybe gives people a a good notion of uh, the homophobia that exists in this world as well? Absolutely. Oh, gosh, there's plenty. Um, I I dance in, in classical ballet and... I, I tell stories. So there are all these big classical ballet stories, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, Giselle, you name it. And every role that I play is a straight man. You know, it's always a prince. It's always the cad, always this sort of, I don't know, roguish dude. And uh, I, I'm an out gay man and I have witnessed people who perhaps don't have the ability to, you know, translate their physicality or their acting into a really like butch place, a traditionally butch place, uh, be passed over for roles regardless of their ability to dance. They can have incredible virtuosic technique and power, but uh, just not quite cut it as far as the storytelling goes. So my suggestion is to make space for these people who don't always fit into the Butch Prince category. Um, we need to make new stories with, with uh, you know, different types of people filling the ranks of the story. Has this shift started to happen yet? It has in, in sort of contemporary ballet. Okay. But full-length classical ballets cost so much money to produce. Mm. New sets, new costumes, new music, new everything. And uh, they're a gamble. They're a big gamble for companies. And uh, in America, we're not subsidized by the government so much. So we have individuals giving huge sums of money to something that might not work. And that's why you see so much placed on the shoulders of classics like the Nutcracker and Swan Lake, because they're a financial win. Thank you for that explanation. Fiona Apple is an important part of your life's soundtrack. I'm a big fan of hers as well. My current obsession is her song, I Want You to Love Me, off the album that came out last year. What is your favorite song of hers all time and why? Oh, there's so many. That is such a hard question. Um, 
I love Get Gone from When the Pawn, which is her sophomore album. Um, when the Pawn is my favorite album of hers. I like how um, it's it retains a little bit of pop gloss, but is very dark and and quite grumpy. <laughs> uh, and it was it was exactly what I needed at that point in my life. I was struggling with my sexuality and dealing with a family dynamic that was less than magical. And, uh, and it's, it was just perfect. Yeah. There's so many songs on that album that just really do it for me. Agreed. You hate being asked about how you got into dancing. So I won't bother wasting your time here with that one, but what is a question that you wish people asked you more? Oh, I wish people asked me about video games more. I adore playing video games. Okay, so you and I grew up in the Sega Genesis generation. What were some of your favorite Sega Genesis games? Oh my God, there are so many. Um, okay, I adored the Sonic series, obviously. They were just excellent games. You know, Sonic and Knuckles really crushed it for me. Um, Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat culturally for me, like as a, as a social thing, was really important for me. It connected me to boys my age when boys my age never really wanted to connect with me because I was a little weird and other. Hmm. Um, gosh, there were so many. Do you ever play Toe Jam and Earl? Oh, of course. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Toe Jam and Earl. Did you ever play Kid Chameleon? That one was really amazing. Yep. Um. There were so many. I, I, I almost want to like go back and play a bunch, but I, I don't have a Genesis anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, me neither. You point out in this book that ballet dancers obsess over their own physical shortcomings. Which details about yourself did you use to fret, and why were you ultimately able to get over these insecurities? So ballet has a very specific aesthetic that uh, people are challenging more and more as we move into the future, which I love. And when I was in training, uh, I idealized certain people's bodies, you know, specific things like hyperextended knees, meaning like they bend a little backwards, creating this sort of beautiful S curve, high arches, really flexible feet, long arms, long neck, you know, you name it. Um, myself specifically, I would always say, oh, I'm so turned in. My hips are so narrow and I can't open my hips up and be flexible for ballet. My knees look bent, like all these things. Uh, when in the grand scheme of things, I, I'm doing just fine. So when, when I started professionally, I was comparing myself to people all the time, not just my dancing, but my body. And I've never been super insecure about my body but i ballet gave me this sort of like idea of what it should look like and once i figured out that i didn't have to compare myself to everybody else or other successful people um i found more ways to explore my own artistry my own ability and strength and agility and that freedom gave me a lot of confidence that paid off like crazy because in performance Confidence is key. The audience can feel your confidence mm. and they, it's like an exchange of energy and you're just, you're just like rooting each other on in a weird way. Mm. Last thing, James, 
I am going to uh, read off my favorite two sentences of the book, which actually happened, I want to say, within the last couple paragraphs of this entire book. You write, quote, Time has complicated life. It's not that life has become more complicated. It's that with age and wisdom comes vision that bears the world before you in all its monstrous glory. What do you mean by that? I don't believe ignorance to be a good thing. I think it creates a a laziness. And so as I get older, I'm not an old man, but I have experienced some things and I will continue to experience things that will give me perspective and wisdom. And I think that above all is incredibly valuable in, in growth and expression. Excellent. James Whiteside is principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater. He is also a member of the New York City-based drag posse, The Dairy Queens, and now a published author. His new book is titled Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir of a boy in ballet. You can get it now wherever books are sold. James, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Thank you, Trey. Thanks. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Join me next time when I speak with storytelling expert Frank Rose on The Sea We Swim In, how stories work in a data-driven world. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.